So you, maybe we shouldn't talk about politics, hey? <laughs> so it was a, a very strong win last night to the Labor Party. And as I was watching um, the, the whole thing last night, and as I went to vote yesterday, I was just uh, overwhelmingly, I think I've just pulled out the back. Chris, it's all right. That's what's happened here. You with me? I'll just put this back in. Okay. Oh boy, this is frustrating, isn't it? I'll just go back to this. Um, but as I went, what, what I was amazed is, is just the incredible uh, country that we live in, don't we? That we can all walk up to a polling booth, put in our vote. Um, it's so complicated, I can't explain it to my kids, the two-party preferred preferential voting system. But then to be able to sit down at night, you know, around the telly and see all the votes coming in, being counted and what's happening, I find it just fascinating to be in a country where we can do that. And then what staggered me even more is, you know, when John Howard came up and he said, I just want to say congratulations to the other side, you know, and I'm wishing them all the best. And then Kevin Rudd goes, thank you to John Howard and I think he's done a good, you know, and they sort of compliment each other. In some countries they're killing each other at times like this and we live in a good country, don't we? Yeah, it's great. So why don't we uh, pray for the new government and uh, just thank God for our country this morning. We'll do that in just a few, few moments. And I think what we'll do too is just to let you know some family news as well. We've got Phil and Michelle Weeks with Ben is in this place, but Amelia is here, first time in church this morning. So welcome to the Weeks family, little Amelia. I've just been given a notice too. Uh, from the Joneses, from Ron Jones, and he says, uh, would you please convey to the church uh, th their thanks and love and prayers for the practical help, flowers, and all that has been a great encouragement to Ada and I during my time in hospital and um, since coming home from hospital. We thank God for the privilege of being part of a family at Wodonga Baptist Church. So it's great to see Ron here too, covering, recovering from his operation, which he's just feeling so thankful for. Great to see you, Ron. Welcome back, wherever you are. There you are. Great. And thank you, church, for gathering around them at this time too. want to let you know important things in your news sheet just to keep an eye on. This Wednesday night, church members, and even if you're just interested in having a look, you can't participate in voting, but you can come if you're interested. Uh, this Wednesday night, 7.30, here at the church, uh, church meeting, we seek to be as informative as we can, to share with people what's going on. We, we seek to not labour the points too long, so we get to the business, and we really seek to seek the mind of Christ. So come and be part of what God's doing in leading our church this Wednesday night. So if you're a, a member, we just call upon you, urge you to come. It's part of your membership sort of uh, covenant to come. Uh, and, and we would just love you to be here to seek the mind of Christ with us Wednesday night. And hey, how long till the Christmas musical? Two weeks. Two weeks. Fantastic. We've got these great flyers. I saw one down at the library this week. I see them at the school where I pick up the kids. If you can put them up anywhere this week without getting arrested, do that. And if you have friends, why don't you take a few and just put them in your, uh, so the smaller ones, put them in your bag or in your pocket and give them out as you meet people um, this week or as you catch up with friends. It'll be great. We're looking forward to it. 
And there's a whole column where we'd just love you to uh, read and know about that. Now, Sandy just wants to make a quick announcement about that too. Welcome, Sandy. Everyone. She's working very hard. <laughs> along with many others. We've all been working hard over the last um, few months. But I want to speak to some parents today that have got kids, children in um, kids' church, in the big kids' church. We've given your children an opportunity to be a part of this year's musical by singing in a children's choir for one of the songs. And kids' church have been learning the song over this term. And if you want your child to be involved or if your child would like to be involved, I need to know. And there's some forms that are at... Um, the sign in and out area that um, if you could please fill out one of those today and just indicate you don't have to do all the performances you can just indicate that you could do one or or maybe two of them and I'm then going to allocate out so that we don't have 70 kids on the stage um, each night but that we have about 20 or so and um, at the moment I need a few more children and I'm sure your kids would love to be involved and you would love to see them as part of this year's musical so if you could fill out one of those forms and also if your child would like to be involved um, after the service today I want to do a just a practice with just those kids because they've been practicing with the whole kids church which is great but I would just like some of those um, the kids that are wanting to be part of the musical in the choir just to stay for 15 minutes after the service so if that's your child or it, you want that to be um, we also just want to let you know that we've come to the very last message in the Sermon on the Mount so if you have your Bible this morning it'd be great if you could turn to Matthew chapter 7 I've been here for a number of months now and uh, looking at Jesus's words from the Sermon on the Mount the greatest sermon ever told and um, we're coming to the, just the last verses today. So Matthew chapter 7 and verses 28 to 29. Matthew chapter 7 and verses 28 to 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. As we come uh, to continue to worship and to uh, open his word and look at it together, why don't we gather in prayer? Let's lift up our hearts to God in prayer this morning. God, we want to thank you for this new day, for this new day to gather together as your children, as your church, and to praise you and to worship you, and to open your word and to allow you to speak to us and to guide us and to lead us this morning. God, we're here because we want to grow. We've come to know you, and we want to grow stronger in our faith, deeper in our love for you, more obedient to your word every day. And God, we're here to say, speak to us, teach us, stretch us. God, we want to be your followers, stronger and closer each day. So God, thank you for your word and thank you for this opportunity that we have to be together. And God, we do want to thank you for this great country that we're a part of. God, we thank you for the free and democratic right to vote. And God, we thank you that we had the opportunity yesterday to, to vote. And we just praise you and thank you for the um, freedom that we had to do that in quietness, in privacy, 
uh, able to, to, to vote freely. And God, we thank you for the way in which the uh, election was run and we know so much of the results already. God, we thank you too that each of our leaders seek to really uh, lead and advance the, the Australian country. And we would pray this morning for our new Prime Minister, Mr Kevin Rudd. And we pray for him and the government that he will form. And Lord, we pray that you would give him much wisdom and strength in the coming years. And God, we pray that you would help him to be faithful and diligent in serving our country. And God, we pray that you would help us as, uh, as, as people in this country to where appropriate to speak up for you, you and to do what we can to help this country be a better place too. God, we want to thank you for the opportunity to get together this week and we just pray that as our church gathers on, on Wednesday night that you would lead us and that you would speak to us. God, we pray for the important decisions that need to be made and we just pray that this would be a wonderful time for our church. And Lord, we pray for the Christmas musical coming up. Thank you for all those that are giving of their time and effort and creativity and, and to make this such a wonderful, wonderful time. And we pray that as uh, people invite, as we go and invite friends and neighbours, that there would be a great response and that many people would come. And we pray that as they experience our Christmas musical, that the truth of what you have done, Lord, at Christmas time, in coming, in living amongst us, in, in living a life where you died for us so that we can know you, that this message would come through and the people would, would open their hearts to you, God. God, we thank you. Thank you for giving us life and breath and lips to praise you and hearts that just want to tell you time and time again how much we love you. And we thank you now, God, as we continue to worship you. We want to pray particularly, God, now for those as, as we come to worship you who feel heavy hearts, who feel burdens, God, who feel uh, that they're really struggling with the future and not knowing what will be in front of them. God, for those that are sick this morning, we pray. We want to lift up those now in our hearts and ask that you would touch them and strengthen them. You're a great God. And thank you that you're with us and with them this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's continue to worship. I was uh, at the polling booth yesterday and I saw Jonathan Wright from the ABC and I yelled out across the crowd, who are you going to vote for, Jonathan? <laughs> they have to be so impartial and not revealing it away. But is Jonathan here today? I think it's your last day with us, isn't it? You, you might come back just before, but you're heading off to South Australia and uh, starting a new role with the ABC there. So we're going to miss you and we hope your family survives these next few weeks without you. And, um, yeah, we're going to miss you a lot. So thanks for all you've done for us. Why don't we? Farewell. Yeah. And, and Donna Bruce too. Donna's here. She's going up to Canberra as well. Is Donna here as well? Anyway, she's, she's, yes, at the back. Sorry, Donna, you don't like being identified like this, do you? <laughs> but we just want to say God bless you too as you prepare to travel and go and the family moves. We just hope it's a great next chapter in your life as a family too. God bless. I can remember um, 
when I was about 17, I had a difficult phone call to make. I put it off for about two days. But it was one of those hard phone calls that everyone hates making if you've ever had to make one. But I had to break it off with my girlfriend, Crystal. (laughs) I was starting to realise that she had much more feelings for me than I had for her. And it was not right. And I thought, we'd only been going out for two weeks. (laughs) Otherwise, I would have said it face to face, of course. But I thought, two weeks... Um, I better just call her. So I put it off for two days. That's almost, you know, a big proportion of our time going out that I stalled. But I finally rang her and I said, Hi, Crystal, it's, it's Jonathan here. And she said, Oh, hi, honey. <laughs> I thought, Oh, no, this is not going well. <laughs> I said, Hi, you know, how are you? She said, Fine. Uh, in the most friendliest way I've ever heard her speak to me over the previous two weeks. And uh, so I quickly realised I'd better speak quickly. So I plucked up the courage and I said, Crystal, look, I rang to tell you that I don't think we should go out anymore. Um, It's nothing you've done. It's all about me, you know. (laughs) But I'm really sorry. And I heard nothing on the end of the phone. I said, Crystal? And I heard the phone sort of move around a bit or something drop. Then I heard a more concerned voice come on the other end of the phone. Is that you, Jonathan? What did you say to my friend Jane? And it was Crystal on the phone now. And I'd never been... Jane, I was speaking to a friend at the start who was pretending to be Crystal. (laughs) So I had to pick myself up again and dump her all over again. Terrible phone call. (laughs) Do it face to face if you ever have to. I wonder if you yourself have ever had a time when you were talking to someone and as you continued to talk to them, you suddenly started realising that they weren't the person who you thought they were, just like me and Crystal. I think as people listened to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever told. The people actually, while they were listening and started to hearing the content of the message and how clearly it applied to people's lives and to them and the profoundness of the the teaching, the people started to not think anymore about the teaching but wonder more about the teacher. Who is this who's speaking? He's not like the other teachers. Perhaps some of those listening began to see Jesus for who he really was. The Son of God. Jesus. God with us. Jesus. God. Jesus. As Jesus spoke the the greatest sermon ever, The crowds, we're told, at the end of the sermon were absolutely amazed by the substance of the message and the quality of his teaching and the way in which he taught them. They were amazed. There'd been so many teachers before. So I wonder what made him different? What made him different? 
think one of the things they noticed as they listened to, to Jesus was that he taught absolute truth. He taught absolute truth. He seemed, uh, he, he, he seemed to just assume the right that he could teach absolute truth, just like that. He spoke in a way which was not bound to time or culture. The way he spoke applied universally. He knew who would be great in God's kingdom and he knew who would be least, who was blessed in God's kingdom and who was not, which way led to life and which way led to destruction. He knew that. With complete uh, kind of self-confidence, Jesus declared who would inherit the kingdom of heaven and who would inherit the earth, who would obtain mercy and who would see God and who would be fit to be called God's children. How could he be so sure? They must have been wondering, how can he be so sure? Not only did he teach absolute truth, but he was completely different to the other teachers of the law. I mean, when they were comparing him in their mind to the kind of teacher that expected to hear or the kind of teachers that they usually heard, the, the difference was vast. What struck them was that most of them taught as one who used authority others' authorities when they speak. That's what most people, most of the teachers in his time did. You see, the scribes claimed no authority of their own. They conceived their duty as being faithful to the tradition that they'd come from. So they would go back in history and they'd look at what the commentary said and what different rabbis had said about this point or that point to prove their point, but they looked to others for the authority of the things that they were saying. They quoted endlessly and their only authority lay in the authorities that they were constantly quoting. Jesus, on the other hand, had not received a scribal education. He'd been not trained like the others and yet he scandalised the establishment by sweeping away the traditions of the elders he had no particular reverence for the social conventions. In fact, he, he spoke against them and he spoke with a freshness of his own which captivated so many people as they hung on every word but also infuriated people. A.B. Bruce summed up the difference by saying that the scribes spoke by authority while Jesus spoke with authority. He was different from the scribes and teachers of the day. And as people were listening, they must have noticed that. They must have felt that. You know, not only was he different from them, but he was different from the Old Testament prophets too. The Old Testament prophets didn't share the same addiction to the past as uh, the scribes did. They didn't look endlessly backwards. They, they looked forward and they lived in the present. And they claimed to speak in the name of Yahweh, Jehovah. They, they heard the living voice of God. 
and it was taught through their lips. And Jesus also insisted like them that his words were God's words. He said in John 7 verse 16, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. Yet there was a difference between Jesus and the Old Testament prophets. Uh, the, The prophets introduced their words with, thus says the Lord, thus saith the Lord. Jesus never said this. Instead, he would begin, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. Uh, What he was saying, by speaking his own name and his own authority, he was saying that his will was identical to his father's will. This, I tell you the truth, or I tell you, occurs six times throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And on six more occasions, we find even a stronger use of words that he refers to in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, but I say to you, but I say to you. He said, you've heard it said this, but I say to you. And what he would speak was correcting the way in which the people of the time had misinterpreted Moses' laws. And instead of overriding them, he didn't override them, he fulfilled them. He gave the people the true meaning of what God was saying through Moses. By doing this, Jesus was saying and telling people what God actually meant, what his law really meant. I think as the people were hearing, they would have realised that he was different from the scribes, that he was different from the Old Testament prophets. And as they heard him taught, they must have realised that he was not who they might have originally thought he was. He spoke with authority, the authority of God. He himself was God. You know, uh, Bernard Ram, an American professor of theology, said this about the teaching of Jesus. He said, there are more read, the, the teachings of Jesus, they are more read, more quoted, loved more, believed more and translated more because they are the greatest words ever spoken. Their greatness lies in the pure, lucid spirituality in dealing clearly, definitively and authoritatively with the greatest problems that throb in the human heart. No other man's words have appealed have the appeal of Jesus' words because no other man can answer these fundamental human questions as Jesus answered them. They are the kind of words and the kind of answers we would expect God to give. The teachings of Jesus Christ, as we see in in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, have made the foundation of entire civilizations in the Western world, Uh, England, America and Australia, many of the laws of of this country were originally based on the teachings of Christ. We're we're making progress in civilisation in virtually every field of science and technology. We travel faster today than ever before and yet in nearly 2,000 years no one has improved on the moral teachings of Jesus Christ as they listened to the greatest sermon ever told they began to realize that this was no ordinary man 
This was the greatest man that had ever lived. This was God. You know, many people say, I love the teachings of Jesus. Many people, people you might meet at work or meet in the street, they say, I love the the teachings of Jesus. I love the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. I, I love to live by the teachings on the Sermon on the Mount. But they probably have never read the Sermon on the Mount. Because as we've read it together, it's absolutely challenging, isn't it? (laughs) Difficult. It's difficult to live the Sermon on the Mount. And although these are the words of Jesus and we long to live them ourselves, we find it incredibly difficult to obey his words and to live them. So how can we reconcile Jesus, who spoke the Sermon on the Mount and his words to our lives where we fall short so often when we try and live the Sermon on the Mount but find us coming up so short time and time again. I think it helps to look at the life and the legacy of Jesus to try and understand how we can reconcile this Sermon on the Mount and our calls to live it as his followers and who Jesus was. Jesus was born roughly 2,000 years ago in a country, uh, in a a town which was dumpy, it was obscure, it was rural, it was kind of a backward, out-of-town place. One of those places where everybody loves to watch the wrestling and uh, are still watching repeats of Kingswood Country, I reckon. It would have been one of those, you know, really backward sort of places. It's the kind of town where most of the people probably went shooting and if they shot it, they'd eat it for dinner, you know. They were a tough kind of town. And Jesus grew up working for the first 30 years of his life and he didn't do a clerical job. He lived as a labourer. He was a tough, blue-collar worker, Jesus. He was swinging a hammer with his dad. He worked hard as a carpenter. So contrary to popular opinion and to the photos you may have seen of him, Jesus was not some kind of angelic-faced, long-haired kind of saviour with gel in his hair, you know, who kind of looks like butter wouldn't melt in his mouth. Jesus would have been a tough guy. He would have had calluses on his hands from the hard work that he had done while building. He would have had a strong, solid build from his hard work. For the three years that Jesus did his ministry, he preached, he healed, he taught, he travelled. He was an itinerant and his life was fairly simple. He never travelled more than 200 miles from his home. He never wrote a book, he never held a political office, He never formed a company. He himself did not become rich. He did not become affluent. He did not become powerful in worldly terms. He lived a very simple life, a humble life. He never got married. He never had children. He never did some of the things which our society would say are good things to do. Jesus didn't do those things. He died at age 33. He was homeless and he was a 
he was broke. That's the life of Jesus. The legacy of Jesus, though, is completely different. Human history swings on this man Jesus. Before Christ, BC, and AD, they separate, the year of our Lord separate time. All of history hinges on Jesus' life. He's the most famous and significant person in the history of the world. He's a man to whom more songs have been written and sung. More paintings have been painted. More books have been written than any other person in the history of the world. And today, uh, a few billion people on the planet worship Jesus Christ. They worship Jesus Christ alone as God. And in his wake, Christianity has come, the largest religion in the world. And the question is, how do we go from the simple life of Jesus Christ to this incredible legacy that he's left behind? How can we reconcile his ordinary life to the life that he's left behind? And there's only one way to do it. It's through the cross. For many, many years now, people have come to see that the sign of Christians, the thing that represents the Christian faith, perhaps more than any other thing people look to, is the cross of Jesus Christ. And Jesus not only taught how to live in the Sermon on the Mount, but he actually died so that we might live. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ was crucified. He died on a cross. Now, when many people hear about that, we think, isn't that a lovely thing, that Jesus would die on a cross for us? Uh, And sometimes we forget the overwhelming horribleness of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and what he went through. It wasn't just a nice, lovely act. It was horrible. And today the significance sometimes can become so familiar because we put a cross around our neck, a nice gold cross, or we put it you know, you know, around our, on our bracelets or something like that. And and we think the cross, it's a lovely sign of Christ's love for us. But it would be like today, you and I walking around with an electric chair around our necklace or a, a, a noose hanging off our thing. It was the cross was used to kill people, to execute people. It was so horrible, one of the cruelest forms of ex- ex- uh, execution that humankind has ever known. It was abolished in AD 3, 315 because even the Romans thought that this act was too horrible to continue with. And to be crucified was, was a horrible way to die. But the person being crucified would be stripped and would be beaten and flogged, often with a cat and nine tails. And if you've seen The Passion of the Christ... This was a a really wonderfully um, accurate uh, portrayal of what Jesus 
went through and the pain that he would have gone through before his execution. The person was nailed hands and feet to the cross and often because of the pain of the person being crucified, they would lose control of their bladder and, and, and their bowel. And as they were being crucified and as they were hanging on the cross, their urine would, would come, come out and, and feces would come from, from them and would gather in the bottom of the cross in a little pool there and it would stink as they were crucifying. Often what would happen is the person would not be able to hold up their bodies from the cross and this would cause them to suffocate and to die quicker. So what the Romans often did was put a little ledge, a little piece of wood right near the bottom so they could sit on top of it so to keep them from suffocating too much. And, and, and what they would do is they would leave them there and people would often die this cruel and horrible death over days. A slow death. Not only was the pain enormous, but the shame was horrible. People would just gather around and would would, uh, look at you naked on the cross and the sign of your crime would be above your head and people would scoff at you and jeer at you. A lot of the low lives or people that were unemployed or didn't have any would come running to public crucifixions and it would happen in places where people could gather and watch and, and look around. And as you hung there, people would make fun of you. Sometimes because there was no way for those who were being crucified to retaliate, they would try and urinate on the people who were mocking and jeering at them. That was their only defence people could do. It was so humiliating. Sometimes people's parts were known to come off and dogs had been known to take home parts of humans and eat them as bones. Often bodies would be left and over the days become food for vultures as they hung on the cross. And people, they did this to God They did this to God. Why would they do that? Why would God allow this to happen to his son? I think it's because he knew that you and I could never live the message of the Bible, the message of the Sermon on the Mount on our own. We fall short time and time again. Who is always merciful? Who is always meek? Who is always pure in heart? Who has never looked on a woman lustfully? Who has never got angry before? Who has always loved their enemies? I know I have fallen short time and time again. And as the Sermon on the Mount teaches, I deserve help for all of eternity, because of the things I have done wrong that have grieved the heart of God. And I have no doubt that you would be the same as well. I find myself often knowing that I deserve hell because I've not obeyed the commands of Christ. It leaves me desperate. It leaves me feeling unable to stand before a holy God 
it causes me to cry out to God for mercy, saying, God, I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. Because of God's requirements being made clear in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm found in great need of Jesus' horrible death. Because it's only in that that I can be forgiven. See, with every nail, with every blood that flowed, with every bruise that he suffered, he was taking upon himself our sin, my sin. In his body, he was bearing my shame, my guilt. Many people who have been hurt by others or have hurt others know the shame of being um, molested or being hurt, abused sexually and often just want to have a shower to be clean because it's just so horrible even thinking about it. And Jesus was scorned and mocked and all shame was poured out on him and he is able to take your sin and your shame and my sin and my shame. The Bible says that he was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The horrible death of Jesus on the cross means that my death, my sin, my debt is paid in full. And to all who call upon the name of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is offered freely, not cheaply. It costs God, his own dear son, so that you can be forgiven. Jesus' death not only means but that my debt is paid in full as I've put my trust in him But his resurrection means that through the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ now lives in me. On the third day, Jesus rose triumphantly from the grave. He defeated sin and death. And for those who will accept his death on the cross as him dying in your place, Jesus, who has risen and ascended and sent his Holy Spirit, comes into the life of believers who put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And not only because of Jesus' death can we stand before a holy God, justified, holy, with no condemnations, as Roman 8 says to us, no condemnation because of what Christ has done on the cross. But we can now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, seek to live every day in a way that is obedient to God's call to live like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not only forgiven, I have the Holy Spirit living in me to help me each day 
to seek to obey the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Not because by obeying them I am saved, get that clearly, church, but because Jesus died on the cross to forgive you for your horrible sin and because now you are saved because of your faith in him. So now we long to live the Sermon on the Mount as a response to his love for us, to his sacrifice for us, and we long to do that. And then we cry out every day for the power of the Holy Spirit to help empower us to live in a way that we never could otherwise. And when we fail, we cry out to Jesus in forgiveness. We remember the death that he died on the cross and we seek to live it again. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as I am perfect. And we seek to do that because he's demonstrated his love for us in dying for us. Have you realised that Jesus is so much more than a great teacher? He's a great saviour. And just like that day in the Sermon on the Mount, today he's wanting to call you to become one of his followers. If you've never responded to the call of Jesus, who was crucified on the cross, so that through his death you might be forgiven of your sin, and that by trusting in him, his Holy Spirit, comes into you, into your life, and empowers you to live every day. If you have never done that, today is the great day to do that. All you need to do is right where you are, just ask Jesus to come into your life. We'll give you a moment just to do that in a simple prayer. If you have done this before, I just want to say to you, never, ever forget what it cost Jesus to set you free. And don't you ever go trying to pretend that by being good you can earn your salvation. For it's by grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not of yourself, lest anyone could boast. In other words, I'm just like you. I'm a sinner. I'm no more holy than you are if you're trusting in Jesus Christ. We trust in him together. And it's only through his death that we're made right. So this morning, if you have accepted that in the past, as we close and as we sing together uh, a last song, would you just remember the incredible death of Jesus Christ and what it cost him and walk out this morning trusting in his grace, his amazing grace. As we close this message, the greatest sermon ever preached Let's pray to the greatest saviour who we have. Let's pray, church. God, we want to thank you for your word, for your words on the mountainside, for your instructions on how to live. And God, we know we fall so short so often. And so we need you. We cry out to you for mercy. We cry out to you to forgive us because of what you have done on the cross. And this morning, if this is the first time that you've ever realised 
why Jesus died, why he, he, he suffered so much on the cross, that it was for your sins. Maybe in this is quietness time, just in your heart, say, yes, Jesus, I want to accept what you've done for me on the cross. I want to become your child, your servant. Maybe you could say that now. God, we thank you for dying and for rising again and for giving us your Holy Spirit who lives in each one of us. And Lord, for those who have put their trust in you many years ago and continue to cling to the cross of Christ every day for forgiveness and, for, and thankful for the salvation that you have given us because of that. We just want to say thank you afresh this morning. And renew our commitment to live obedient lives for you, depending on the Holy Spirit and seeking to be salt and light as we take this message into your world, our world. We thank you, Jesus. You're the greatest preacher that ever preached. You're the greatest saviour. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. In these next moments, I just want to give you an opportunity right where you are to just take out the blue card and to respond as we come to worship him. Let's, uh, let's give thanks. God, we thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Greater love has no one than this than he laid down his life. And, and God, you have laid down your life for us and you've called us your friends. We were your enemies, far from you, doing our own thing, yet you have died in our place. And we just thank you. As we give, we just want to say we're very thankful, God. We want to live our lives differently because of this. We want to depend on you every day for the power and strength to do this. Take our lives now. Take our offerings. Take all that we have as we worship you, as we give now. In Jesus' name. Amen.